All right, all ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, yet again, welcome to the Legitimus Podcast. We are on episode number 14 now. Dang. Anybody know a popular football player with number 14? Seeing that I play this game all the time, I guess nobody else does. Number 14, Joe Montana? I don't no. Know. <laughs> Do you not like Joe Montana? I love Joe Montana. He's one of the greatest. How about uh, Dan Fouts? Never, I've never heard of that guy. What? Dan Farts? Farts, yeah, Dan Farts. That's exactly what he said, Dan Farts. What is that Kenny, noise? Killer? Kenny Anderson. Have you ever heard of Kenny Anderson? No, like you have All to right. name you have to name someone. All right. Like, Obviously, the the football reference has failed miserably with you two, at least. Anyway, so on to the podcast. Here we go, episode number fourteen. So today, as always, we have myself, Mike Miller from Double Bet Axe Company here in the great state of Pennsylvania. We have a Mister Chris Killinger, leather worker, and any other title that you want to give to him over in the great state of Ohio. <laughs> And we have Mr. Roy Scott from Vintage Axe Works. Dirty South. Representing the Dirty South, as always, down in Kentucky. So in today's episode, we tried to open it up a little bit. We had uh, some really, really good success with last week's episode, uh, where we basically talked about Norland axes and all the ins and outs, the history, uh, what we knew, what we don't know. Uh, really great episode. Got a lot of positive feedback from that. So we thank everybody for that. So today we decided to try and open this up a little bit and take some questions from uh, everybody that's been listening to us and try and get some answers out there on those particular questions. So we got about 10, 11 questions here that you, the people, have submitted in to us. So we'll dive right in here. Our first question is actually tailored towards Mr. Kellinger. And this question says, for Chris Killinger, the goat herder, leatherman, landscaper, etc. <laughs> you want to try our hands at leather work. Wondering if you had any tips or tricks for beginners and maybe any YouTube videos. We love the videos. Keep up the great work. This is coming from John from our friends to the north up in New Brunswick, Canada. What? We're an international, baby? We are internationally known on the microphone. Take Dang. it away, killer. Uh, <clears throat> so, I mean, just uh, my first piece of advice is just keep it simple. Don't go buy a bunch of tools. You don't need that many tools to do leather work. Um, you'll want more stuff later on down the road. <clears throat> but make sure you like the hobby before you, you go invest all this money. I've actually seen uh, on eBay, there's like all kinds of leather working starter kits now for dirt cheap and I mean, it's probably all garbage, but it'd be enough to get you going, and then you can always upgrade what tools you use later on. Because some of these leatherworking tools are really stupid. You know? So, Killer, obviously I don't know very much about leather, if anything. So when you say basic tools, they give me two or three that I would have to have as a new guy in the leather game. Well, you basically need to be able to cut leather and sew it. So... Or if you're going to go with rivets, then you need you need to be able to have the tools. So if you're just going to cut and sew, you're going to need literally a razor blade knife. Um, I use the, the out the front, whatever brand, where you 
O-L-L-F-A, where you break off for a fresh blade. Um, I use I use those like they're free. I act like I, <laughs> yeah. I, as soon as it stops cutting, I break it off and go for another one. Um, I don't waste my time with doll knives. Um, so then you'll need a way to poke the holes in the leather, and that can be achieved with uh, an awl, or they actually sell pricking irons for uh, poking holes. Um, I I prefer to use what I would call a, a pricking iron. It's just a fork that has like four prongs on it. If I'm going to hand sew something, I'll use that to mark the holes, and then I'll go back and push the holes through with an awl one at a time, just like the old old guys used to do it. I think you get the cleanest, most consistent results with that. Um, you'll need a what they call a stitching groover. Um, it's basically a tool that allows you to put an even stitch line on your leather so you know where you're going to stitch. And then you'll need some needles and thread. And um, if you go on to any leather working supply chain, uh, Weaver Leathercraft, Buckle Guy, any of those, they're going to be able to square you away on what needles and thread. You just look at their charts, <clears throat> and it'll be able to get you going with what needles and threads you need. Um, it's nice to have a pair of pliers. I use a, a Leatherman to pull the needle through, but you could use any pair of pliers. And, uh, of course, you need leather. To start out, just go on eBay and look for, like, um, eight, nine ounce or seven, eight ounce, something like that, veg tan leather. And there's like tons of people that sell like 12 by 12 squares, you know, and you can make a couple sheets out of that and, or whatever it is you're making. You don't need to go buy a whole hide. That's pretty much it if you want to sell leather. Now, if you want to use rivets, you're going to need a way to punch the holes. And then depending on what rivet style you're going to use, you're going to need rivet setters. But none of this, like I could do all of that, Put together a little tool set for under a hundred bucks, probably closer to fifty bucks, and be making le- making leather. I'm gonna make one recommendation here, if I may. Yeah. Uh, don't waste time with rapid rivets. I I think they're kind of shitty. Chris is shaking his head. Like they have oh, they have a place. Um, I've but- I've just come close to like I have a stack of knife sheets right here that'll probably come to a thousand knife sheaths and out of a thousand knife sheaths i have not had one rapid rivet failure not but you you put one rapid rivet in each sheath just one yes correct okay so my thing is is whenever you're looking at an axe sheath or a knife sheath or something and you see guys line the entire perimeter of the sheath up with those rapid rivets that for one it looks like shit and two they're just really, it's not a good connection in my mind. Okay. They're easy They're easy to screw up. So in that instance, I don't understand why people use rivets anyway. It should be sewn. Okay. <laughs> so I don't have a sewing machine. I'm not going to take the time to hand stitch all of my sheaths. So I use solid... Burr rivets. 
not the titanium ones, like I tried to request for my special leather work there back however many episodes ago. Oh, I forgot that we got into that little discussion, argument, whatever. So we don't need titanium rivets then to start off with Miller leather works or Miller leather dyeing and apparel. Is that no. what we're saying here? Okay. So, Killer, I got a couple questions for uh, Roy here. So new guys that are out there listening, if they don't know what's going on here with leather, we and we do this all the time. We talk about axes and we throw around terms that maybe Joe doesn't know what we're talking about. So when we say eight, nine ounce leather, what does that mean? Because I'm immediately thinking, like, I'm just going to buy nine ounces of leather. Obviously, that's not right. So what does that mean? It's just a way to gauge the thickness of the leather. So is that like a quality standard then? No, just um, you need to know you need to know what thickness of leather you want to use because different thicknesses you get different results. So the lower the number, the thinner the leather is. The higher the number, the thicker the leather is. Um, eight nine ounces is a good starting point because anything above that is super um, stiff and it's hard to bend, and anything below that is a little on the thin side. So um, often hear seven, eight ounce for knife sheaths, and it, it, that's actually a decent weight for knife sheaths. Um, but like if you went to like a six, seven ounce, that's on the thin side. It's a little flimsy. Um, I like to use eight, nine ounce because then I can use it for knife sheaths or axe sheaths, and it's plenty thickness for both. Plus, I like my stuff to see, be a little bit more rub, robust, but it literally is just a gauge to tell you how thick the leather is. And I'm, I'm not sure how, the, how that translates. I've never really cared. I just know what the thicknesses feel like. It's just a, it's just a specification. Like whenever you go in and you want to buy anything, you just have to know how it's sold, and that's how it's sold. So uh, I use 9, 10 ounce for my sheaths. What are the designations that that comes in? Is it individual then? Is there like seven and then there's eight and then there's nine or is it eight dash nine, nine dash ten? Like how does that work? If, if it's all, you it's get, always, you've got Joe is looking for it, like how's he going to find it or look for it? It's always two numbers because the way that it's cut, there's always going to be variation in the thickness of the, in the leather. So seven, eight, eight, nine, nine, ten. Um, that's just how it's sold. Okay. And then I think maybe another question that might come to be is, okay, new guys looking. So, you know, obviously I want to start off basic. Now I know what I'm looking for as far as leather and thickness and pliability. Let's talk about the thread then. Is there the same kind of differences in thread, like quality? Obviously there's colors, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I would assume then that there's leather thread versus other kinds of thread. Like, what does that look like? What am I looking for if I'm – getting into the game so there's a lot of different threads out there um, not sure what they I'm looking to see if they have a name on them killers back there are just rattling around like, does it just have, like, a generic name? Like, hey, this is leather thread? Like, would that, if some guy was looking to start off, is that, and he's looking online, is that what he's going to look for? Or is there, like, a different name? Or The best the best way I would explain it is if you're on a on a leather website, 
and they say, it'll say like thread for hand sewing. That's what you want. Um, I used to use this stuff called artificial sinew and I used it for a long time and cause that's what everybody else was using. And it just, it's garbage. <laughs> it looks like complete trash. Um, unless that's the look you're looking for. I want, when I hand stitch, <laughs> I want you're looking my, for trash. I want my thread to, no, I mean, some people are like, oh, that rustic look, gotta have it. <laughs> when I stitch a line, I want my thread to be round and lay, lay round in the, not flat or twisted or any of that shit. So, I, I'd say stay away from the artificial sinew unless you're trying to make period correct rawhide sheets or something. Um, make sure you get a nice, uh, I don't know, be like twisted nylon waxed thread. It's going to be waxed. That's the one special thing about it. Um, most leather hand sewing thread is waxed. And that gives it the ability to slide through the holes better. You can wax it as you're sewing if you want to be old school, but I don't know why you would. There's actually <clears throat> literally thousands of videos on how to saddle stitch leather on YouTube, and you could probably watch 10 of them and, and have a pretty good idea of. Okay. So I guess that was the last part of that question then on the leather. Is there any, uh, you know, the question was asked about YouTube videos. So, again, if I'm new guy to the leather scene, is there anywhere I want to go, don't want to go on YouTube, anything that we, I guess, maybe might recommend or stay away from or anything along those lines? With anything, when you go on YouTube, and I don't I don't have a list of the guys that I, I kind of follow right now, but if you go on YouTube and you start watching videos, don't just watch one video and then that's – that's where you're going to go with anything. I mean, if you want to learn anything, don't just watch one video because the first guy you watch might be an idiot. So you need to watch five, six videos and the consistency of what's right is going to be there. You know, and the one guy that's way off in the, the field over here, ignore what he said and go with the six other guys that all said the same thing. Um, but once you start like looking in, to uh, YouTube videos, you'll quickly find the good guys. Uh, I, like Don Gonzalez uh, sticks out in my mind right now, but he's more of a, a holster and saddle maker. Um, Bruce Bruce Cheney, I think it's Bruce Cheney from Cheney Leather. He's he's a good one to watch. Um, his tutorials are hard to understand though. If you don't know what you're doing, you're not gonna really understand it. But. He's just an old guy trying to keep up with the times, and it's pretty cool. I just started watching this new guy in holster making, um, Adam's Leather. There's a lot of good tips and tricks in there about um, wet forming holster, uh, leather. It, it translates to knives and all that stuff. It, wet forming is wet forming. Um, he's a sewing machine, though. I think it's Leonard or Leonard Leather. DiCaprio? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I know who you're talking about. He's a He's a... British guy. Yeah, yeah. He has tons of really good tutorial videos, tons of them. Hand sewing, bag. Yeah. That, that's the dude that I was that I watched early, early on. The problem with his videos is he's so in-depth with everything. His videos are like at least an hour long. Yeah. But they are high quality, no bullshit. Um, that, that guy is, yeah, he's really good. 
Doesn't Weaver have um, just some real basic oh, yeah. tutorials? Um, Chuck Dorsey with Weaver Leather. Um, totally subscribe to that and watch every video they put out. They're all good. And they've got like spe- specific videos about here's what a beveler is or something yep. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, they'll break that. They break down every step of the process. Like you could literally learn everything you need to know about leather making on Weaver Leather. I kind of forgot about that, but. So just to give a little insight of how Vintage Axe works, how I learned leather, it was those two guys. (laughs) Which two guys were those again, so people know? Weaver and um, that British guy. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's got like a little owl for his logo logo or whatever, I believe. Weaver and the British guy. Okay, so we'll put that out on on the description and stuff like that whenever we're talking about you know, how to get started, what's some good resources, things like that. So then new guy Joe to the leather scene knows what's going on. Okay, very good. So, again, that question came from John in our international crowd from New Brunswick, Canada. John, we thank you and keep the questions coming. We will go to the next question now. <laughs> um, so this question, uh, actually, no, I tell you what, let's go with this one. So. This is a very interesting question, one that I had never really thought about, so we might have to dive into this one here a little bit. And uh, Here we go. This says, it's a, uh, let's see, this is from Mr. Sawyer Smith. It says, I'm curious, especially with the popularity of the Connecticut pattern, which makes sense. It's a very popular pattern. Guys love the Connie, uh, myself included. It says, I'm not sure if anyone has ever made one or ever seen a Connecticut double-bit pattern. I'm aware that there are single and double bit patterns like the Michigan and Cedars, but I'm not aware of any Connecticut double bits. I think that they would be an impressive tool and have some sexy ass lines. Or what about a double bit Jersey or a double bit national? These are just some thoughts I've had, which are really, uh, really good thoughts. Thank you for that. So what do we think about that? Why have we not seen Joey, stop it. a Connecticut double bit pattern or a jersey double bit or now we're getting into we're getting into some serious territory here a national double bit pattern. Any thoughts? Uh, to my knowledge they don't exist. And Miller you're probably gonna say, Well, uh, I've got something in my collection that's fifteen, you know, whatever deep. I've never seen anything like it. I have not either. Uh, I think to his point, though, the, the question here is why? Why is there not a Connecticut double? Why is it not made? Uh, why is there not a Jersey double bit? I think, um, uh, think maybe possibly because of the weight. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, if we're just talking about Connecticut, so I think we need to take these one at a time or else we'll be all over the place. Well, okay, you go ahead. I've got... I've got an idea. The first thing that comes to my mind is that goofy eye on the Connecticut. Like, if you look at it compared to, like, your standard Michigan or Dayton, maybe, like, a Swamper, those all have what I would call, like, a standard eye. It's pretty, it's pretty, what do I want to say, symmetrical. It's pretty even the whole way across. That Connecticut eye, like, if you look on a single bit, you know, from the pole going out towards the cheeks, it has that angle down. So, like, I don't know if, Number one, you'd be able to really do that effectively on a double bit. I think that that would be a major pain in the rear. 
that will be the first thing that comes. I think to Killer's point, if you're looking at weight, you know, your standard Connie is at least three pounds. You don't usually see too many of the boys ones. They are out there. We've seen them now. But normally you're looking at three, three and a half. Put those two things together. You could scale that down a little bit and get into that three and a half, four pound range. I just don't know if it would look right. And you'd be able to make that really symmetrical, especially with that, that heel swoop. Well, so I, th- I, I don't, I don't know how that would, how that pl- would play out. Well, I think what I, what I was going to say is I think that it's, uh, it's the pole geometry. Like what you're saying ties into the eye. So like the Connecticut's got a real, um, real shallow pole from right. the back, from the back of the eye to the edge of the pole. Um, and if you, if you just take one and you flip it over to make a double bit, that distance would be really, really short if you wanted to keep the look of the Connecticut. So whenever you're looking at it straight on as a double bit, the eye width seems like it would be pretty narrow um, side to side. Yeah, which is sort um, of like where I was going with if yeah. you were to take those two and mesh them together. Yeah. Like that eye would be all, and at least your point with the bit, like that. Like to me, it just doesn't work. Like no. I think from a manufacturing standpoint, if I'm looking at that from, if I'm Kelly, if I'm Warren, whoever, and I got to put that thing and I got to mass produce that bad boy, I would think that that would be a royal pain. That's a terrible answer. I'm sorry to give that, but that would be my first thing is that like just trying to do the basic manufacturing and the logistics of that eye, trying to make that come together correctly, I just don't think it would work. So that that would be why I would think that we didn't see them. <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I think so also. So let's go back off of your point then, because you bring up a good point. So we're talking about that distance from the from the back edge of the eye mm-hmm. to the pole is pretty skinny on your Connecticut, right? It's shallow, whatever yep. you want to call it. So now the next question that he says, well, why not a jersey? So now you're in the other side. Now you got a pretty good distance. You got more of a standard distance between the end, the edge of your eye and the pole. So why would we not see that in a double bit? Well, I think, again, the, the pole geometry is so distinct on the Jersey and the Connecticut where it's pretty generic. I say generic loosely on the Dayton's and the Michigan's and whatever that you can just pull those out into a double bit. But like the, the pole on the Jersey and the pole on the Connecticut, those are part of the defining look of those two patterns and like the the rockaway like we talked about that early early on the pole is what the pole and the sweeping edge to the toe is what defines the rockaway um it just if you try if you try to put that into a double bit you just lose all that geometry and it and it turns into like a michigan or it turns like it turns into a, a western pattern like the Western pattern looks like sort of like a jersey. I mean, it's got that big, you know, toe to heel, that that big sweeping cutting edge on there. That's almost the same profile as a jersey if we're taking a look at them. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think that you're definitely on to it because whenever I first thought of if we were to take 
Like, let's just take like your standard jersey with the pointed lug. And if you were to mash those two together and we're going to make a double bit out of that, I thought to myself, <clears throat> you would pretty much have a Western. Yeah. With a big swoop on mm-hmm. the heel coming back. And then you just wouldn't have the pointed lug. Now, I, I guess your Western though is more flat on top. So some yeah. of those jerseys, you'd have a little swoop up. Up to the toe. Yeah. I mean, that'd be pretty minuscule, but I just wonder. So again, if we're thinking about it from manufacturing the ability to do it, the logistics, I just wonder if putting that lug on a double bit would just be so much more of a pain in the rear well, than what would be warranted than actually doing it. Because really, what, what would it be there? It would just be for looks, right? Well, I mean, if you if you go back through the the lugs give you more surface area to, to lock the eye to the, to the head. But they're like, uh, Hoffman makes, um, he's Hawksbill. It's got a pointed lug on it Mm -hmm. and it looks badass. But is it a pain in the rear to make? Again, we're just talking about why didn't Warren or why didn't Kelly make it like that. That's what I'm thinking is that they don't really care what's cool. They're saying, what can I pound out from a manufacturing standpoint? Yeah, that is economical that I could sell that isn't going to cost me a ton to make. And am I going to be able to get my return on investment with it? So it is a good question. I think absolutely that it would be a pain and not really, not really worth it for the, uh, in customer. But to your point though, okay, like my first thought was, you know, in the majority of those double bits, you have pretty good, connection with the handle like you have enough surface area there with the double bit like you really don't need the lug or am i thinking incorrectly there like i don't know if the lug would really benefit the double bit i don't know i I mean it's not going to hurt any it's not going to hurt anything for sure but i'm like from a manufacturing standpoint it's probably just not necessary and if they're like well here's a double bit that costs five dollars, and here's a double bit with lugs, and it's going to cost X number of dollars more. Is the end user going to pay for it? And that's what I was getting at. No, yeah, and I think that you're right there because now we're talking about manufacturing and again that return on investment. I wonder if those would be a major pain to rehandle then. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because now you'd have to have a different spec handle for that, right? With a with a different length on it. So you'd almost have to have your own separate line of handles just for that. Whereas you can get away with all the other ones. Well, the, the other double bits for the most part. Uh, I think you could use the same handles. However, it's just, um, you're going to have to shave down more material, uh, on that shoulder in between the shoulders just to, uh, be able to get it to physically fit. I mean, that's the, that's the hardest part of a Jersey. I mean, if you're making your own handle or you're just hanging a jersey, I mean, jersey is, in my mind, or the hardest, the hardest head, single bit head to hang. They're terrible. Connecticut, Connecticut's are hard, but jerseys, especially Kelly jerseys with the ribs in the eye, oh man, it's just a pain in the ass. But your your length of your handle, though, that if you're going to provide that as a standardized product, will have to be longer from, like, say, the top edge of your shoulder 
up then to the top of your handle. Like you would have to make that handle well, special no. for that, wouldn't you? Because normally most of those are going to, I don't know what that length is that are pretty standard. They might not be able to fully reach that double bit if we had the lugs on there. Because to your point, you're going to have to shave that down. So I need more space. I need, I physically need more wood on that handle. Well, you're taking it more down past the shoulder, um, which is fine, just as long as there's enough material to catch the small of the eye on either side. So you can compare it to a single bit jersey. You don't have a, a, a different handle just for a jersey. So I, I think you can get away with the same handle. Um, I don't think that would be the issue. It'd just be really, it'd be really hard to hang. It would be a massive pain. Yeah. And then the last part of this three-pronged question is, what about the national? So that would be a beast, which would sort of yeah, sort of, it would sort of defeat the purpose of the national pattern uh, itself if you made it into a double bit. But yeah, I, I think that just if they all kind of fall into the same category, they they lose their geometry and they lose their uh, the distinct look and feel of the pattern itself. Yeah, I think that you're um, right. Plus, then if we're talking about the national pattern. And if it had that the quote-unquote rafting head and it was hardened, then you're going to lose that specific aspect of it. So then you sort of lose that distinct quality of that single-bit pattern in the first place. So what's the point of turning it into a double-bit? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that um, some guys just hate double-bits. I mean, Dave Canterbury is like, ah, fuck double-bits. They're dumb. Um, I don't know. It, some people love them. I, I don't know. Well, like Canterbury, I could see though, because if he's in, the, he's obviously in bushcraft world, right? So a double bit probably would not really suit him for his particular needs and what he has yeah. to want. So I mean, that would make sense. Um, but to the I, plum, the plum national thing, I just think it, it for what that particular single bit was originally intended for, it just doesn't make a lot of sense on many different avenues to make that into a double bit. It yeah. Just does, it just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, which it would sort of be similar to, I don't know if it would be that much tremendously different than a Michigan double bit. It would be similar. Not exactly the same, but. You know, as we're sitting here talking about this, I was thinking about um, that cedar double bit. It, it looks a lot like just a modified Michigan whenever you're looking at the double bit. Whenever you see it, it's not like, oh, my God, that's a double-bit cedar. But whenever you see a cedar single bit, you're like, oh, that's a cedar pattern. So, uh, No, exactly. Uh, I, I think that you're definitely on the right track there. So, like, how much different would it actually be from what was already standardized? It probably wouldn't be that much in order to justify what you're going to have to charge on making that is what yeah. I would think. So. Right. You know, and and here's the reality of it too is like you you can take a a Michigan and a Western, and you could you could put them side by side whenever they're brand new and they look completely different. But the 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 condition that we find them in today, like the, the, they're really easy to get messed up because mm -hmm. you could take a you could take a Michigan and grind, grind the edges down to where they come down to, to nice, clean, crisp points, 
and it looks like a Western. Now, it's not going to be completely flat across the top, but it's going to have the same look on the cutting edges as a Western. I 100% agree with you because uh, that's where they end up. That's yeah. where they go the majority of the time. So that's a good and, point, too. So. And even if even if it's not like completely ground down and all nubbed up, you could still um, someone today could could put it on a, a two by seventy two and wear those tips out real freaking quick. I mean, I'm not going to say that I've done it, but I've done it. <laughs> well, it's, early, yeah, it's not not hard to do at all. No, unfortunately, it, it's, it's real easy to to take to take it. Uh, a nice clean rounded edge on the Michigan and make them into like freaking dagger points. It's real easy to jack them up. All right. Killer, do you have anything that you want to throw in there as far as uh, why you've never seen a Connecticut double bit, or maybe you have, maybe you found one over in Ohio. They're running around. You holding out on us. I've never seen one. The closest thing I've ever seen Right here. I don't even know if it'd be like a Connecticut. It'd be like this King Cutter. I don't know what you would. Yeah, that's a weird pattern. It's It's got real wide bits. It even swoops down if you look. You see that? Yeah, it does have a little angle there to sort of flatten out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, why why is it flat on the bottom? Did it, just does it to, look like someone's ground it down or not? Yeah. No, no, it's factory because there's there's factory stamps down there. Yeah. But that's it's, it's I think it's made that way just to give it this ex this wide bit. I mean, that's a really wide. Well, that's not much wider than that BBB. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't so know. The, the, like the, so you just grabbing those two and putting them up for us to look at um, goes back to everything that we're just talking about. There's really no reason to do it because they all just, whenever you mirror that image of that profile, it kind of turns into a Michigan or a Western or whatever, and that's just – like so the three the, – in my mind – there are four double bit patterns that, that stick out. Clearly there are others, but the four that stick out, Michigan, Western, a Swamper, and a Reversible. So of all, of all the double bits out there, yes, there are going to be variations. But like those are probably the most, the four most common. Am I missing anything? Am I missing a big one? So you said Michigan, Western. Those are probably going to be your two most popular. And then the Swamper and the Reversible. So they have the Reversible. Some some people call it the Peeling, the Half Peeling. It has like six different names. And then you have the Swamper, which yeah. to me is sort of the skinny Reversible with more pointed. Yep. Pointed toes and heels on it, just longer. Well, and it's got well, and it's got a shallow depth. Um, Correct. On the eye. Those, they, look, uh, they, look, they look like bow ties to me. Yeah. Those are probably going to be your big four. Obviously, there's others. Uh, I don't I don't put the Puget in there because it's more specialized. 
So if we're just talking overall popularity throughout the course of time, it sort of has its own niche. So I don't count that one. But to your point, I think those would be, yeah, those would probably be the big four. And then, you know, there's the little variations off of those. There's a narrow Michigan. There's a Wisconsin. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But those are going to be your big four, no doubt. So of all of, of the 600 heads that I have, um, I've got one Puget Sound. I've got a ton of Western. i got a ton of Michigan. And I've got a handful of reversibles and, and a handful of swampers. So those two, um, in my mind, uh, hold more aesthetic value to me. I just, I like the look of them better. They just, they look cool. But for all intents and purposes, those four, obviously the, the, the Western and the Michigan are just going to be more personal preference of how you like the lines. But as far as the actual efficiency over either one of those, and I get guys will probably jump all over this, but for the most part, the efficiency between those two is going to be pretty darn similar. The other yeah, two are. obviously are are different beasts, so those are different guys. But to your point, then, if we're going to take this time and we're going to make a double-bit jersey, logistically, manufacturing, cost, return on investment, probably just doesn't make sense to do it. No. Okay. No. All right, so... We've hammered that one enough. Hopefully, let's get some feedback on that for so for you guys that are out there listening. Uh, <laughs> let's not. <laughs> let, I, I would I would like some feedback on that because obviously that's something that um, guys are going to have some input. The guys are going to have some opinions on, and that's cool. We'll uh, we'll see how that all goes. Um, probably then the biggest question that we got, and we got the same question three four times here worded a few different ways, but basically what it says is, let me try and get one of him here to read, is, so we talk a lot about the history of axes and where they've come from, what has happened, and then where we are today. Okay. Where do we see axes, axe history, 40 years, 50 years from now? What will be, what will be looked back on 40 years, 50 years from now? That maybe is popular today, somewhat popular, upcoming, and what will be the vintage axe 40 to 50 years out from now? Uh, any restoration from vintage axe works will be very collectible and very valuable, highly desirable. <laughs> uh, you know, all joking aside, I think there's a little bit of truth in that. Um, not just from me, but, you know, there are a lot of guys out there restoring axes. So maybe in 40 years, someone's going to look back and, and see something that was saved today. Um, because a lot of, a lot of work, I know a lot of work that I'm doing, they don't get used. So it's like a, a stop in time for them, right? So they're getting hung up on walls or whatever. And, um, so maybe in 40 years, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I think there might be something to that. I don't know. But I think, I think the popularity of all the, the same patterns are probably going to be there. I, I mean, I, like we've only got a certain amount of axes in the world left. We've only got a certain amount of patterns 
that were ever made. Um, yes, there are other guys making stuff, Hoffman and those dudes up in Maine or, you know, New England area, whatever. Um, but what we have is what we have. And I think the, the Jersey, the Connecticut, the Hudson Bay, those are always going to be popular. Um, just because they look so daggone cool. All right. So where do we think that the Velva cut will be 40 years from now? Forgotten. Just lost in time. It's a blip, man. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it because I, I like counsel, but I mean, if we're looking at it, you know, 50 years from today, uh, it, it, it to me, you could you could uh, you could put it in the same category as the chemical acts, I mean, or something like that. Yeah, it, it's awesome, it's cool, it's got its place, but there are lots of awesome, cool pieces that have their place, and it'll just be part of the narrative. It's not like I don't think anyone's going to go, oh my god, I got to go get this velvet cut fifty years from now. I I just don't. To touch base on both of the perspectives, I've often said, with all these guys restoring axes and some of these guys... What? um, You cut out. What'd you say? Stop fucking with your eardrum. (laughs) Go! Go! I don't know what I was saying, man. Whatever. What? Come on. What's your perspective? I'm, I'm serious. We had a little technical difficulty. What's up? What I was saying is there's a lot of guys out there restoring axes right now that are doing really good work because everybody's learning from each other. I think you'll, you'll have resurgence of, of interest 40, 50 years from now and the available inventory to the average person is going to be pretty amazing, a lot better than what we have now. My second view on it is – your companies like Council and Grants Force um, and HB are your big companies right now, and I think 40, 50 years from now, those will all be highly collectible, um, depending on where the company's at. If uh, if they all survive, I, I don't know if it'll be as collectible as if they do not survive, um, because looking at what we have now, we're – we're always seeking what's not available anymore, right? And then yeah. you got your little guys like, and I don't mean little as in they're nobodies, but in the grand scheme of things, Hoffman is very talented and very skilled in what he does, but he only makes so many axes and that his reach is only so far. So 40, 50 years from now, unless he's, around still or unless his business expands to where he's putting out like i don't know hundred thousand axes a year you're probably not going to know who hoffman is um and for the people that do know who he is then obviously his pieces will be highly collectible so i don't think anybody's gonna say oh it's just a velvet cut 50 years from now i think they're gonna say wow look this company really tried to keep the axe alive and then whatever happened that, you know, didn't work. I want a velvet cut. I, I think it'll be very collectible. Hmm. What's Miller's thought? 
So this has been something I've been pondering over because obviously, you know, the history and I love it and it keeps me up at night and all this stuff. So I think the first question I would ask is like, where are we going to be 40, 50 years from now? Okay. So I'm 44. So that means at that time I would be 84 or 94 years old and hopefully still rolling around here. Breathing, going to a flea market, giving somebody a hard time about why that axe is, who knows what price it'll be by that time. Like 40 bucks will probably be a deal by that God, time. You're going to be a crotchety son of a bitch. Oh, no doubt. So I think that probably the first question we have to ask is like, where would we be then as like a people? Like, would we be so technologically far ahead by then that like an axe is an absolute afterthought? Like a true museum piece. Like there is no place to even use an axe? Like, would we have some technological machine that would actually render the axe pretty much 100% useless? That's my first thought. Now, that's way out there. And that's, mm-hmm. pretty, that's pretty dumb. But if that's the case, then I think that your axe is going to a whole different ballgame than if we are still using them at that time. Because then they go into true antiques, true museum pieces, things that aren't used anymore. Which then, at that case, I think everything then, whether it's a Velvet Cut, whether it's a Hoffman, whether it's uh, Joe Blow has restored it, whether it's Gransfer's, something like that, holds then a, a totally different aspect than if we still have access. So, like, if council's still around 40 years from now, and hopefully they are, and Gransfer's and, you know, whoever else, and we're still doing this, those are still going to be collectible uh I think just to a different point. Now, there's a few different ways that you could play this out. So let's say council discontinues the velvet cut line, say two years from now, three years from now, we go 40 years, 50 years down the line. You and council is still around and they're still making axes. You had a five year, six year, whatever window that is of when those axes were made. Those are going to hold a different collectible slash historical slash want to them what I think, like very similar to the undercutter axe. A lot of guys like those because you had a window of opportunity when those were made. Mm-hmm. So you would have to look at it from that perspective too. I don't know. I, I mean, my first thought is is that hopefully the collectability and everything like that would still be around for those. Um, you know, if, if we look at, uh, you know, like your standard council, like that sport utility one that I got right now, that 40, 50 years from now will probably be like a wood slasher, right? Or like what we deem as a wood slasher. We sort of bang on wood slashers <laughs> on here, and we and we really shouldn't. I mean, they are a good axe, but those would probably be more like your flintage, your common line axe, right? Like your mm-hmm. everyday, very good yeah. axe. Um, nothing wrong with it, but more of your standard line. Uh, I think the kicker in all this is Hoffman. I don't, I don't know because he's technically young to the axe game his popularity is undeniable um his pieces are very sought after he has ramped up production i've seen so now he is able to produce more pieces at least to some degree i don't know what that looks like i don't know what his plans are i've never actually talked to him He's he could be a wild card because he could be like I, in the axe game right now. I sort of equate him to like one of the New England manufacturers. Like he's like Spiller, mm-hmm. specialized. Yeah. He has a very loyal following. 
He's going to be around probably forever, and guys are going to look back and say, man, that was a quality axe. I want one of those compared to a sport utility, right? So I don't know. He's sort of like the wild card in this whole thing. If you're looking at somebody that's doing stuff like that, I mean, you got uh, Neiman or Hotine or whatever. You got that whole thing going on. So I think that they will be there. I hope that they will be there as far as who is going to be like the most sought after. I don't think that there is an answer to that question. Um, it all depends on how things fold out and where we're at and what level of technology that we have and what is in use and what isn't. Well, and the the other interesting thing is that Hoffman's got 20 years on us. <laughs> so when right. we're 80, when we're 80, this, this fucker's uh, 60 years old, you're still very capable at 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, you never know something he might be like, listen, all right. I'm, and if again, as things change, if if we get to that piece where technologically there is absolutely no call for axes, he's not going to make axes. I don't no. know that for a fact, but if you just look at logistics and. You know, yeah, but he, demand, he has set himself up very, very well because he's not Hoffman axes. He's Hoffman blacksmithing and right. his knives are badass so that kid that kid's going to be able to roll whatever he wants to do and yeah. he he's in a very very good position i think it'll be interesting with like council because obviously the the last you know big name american maker and with how they have tried to position themselves and sort of evolve with the axe game here especially over the last 10 years you know, Velvet Cut, some of the different products. Obviously, now we have the Flying Fox and what that all means with what's going on right now in the axe world, trying to tailor towards, you know, two or three different markets. And what mm-hmm. is that, you know, what's that going to look like then 10, 15 years from now? Is this whole axe throwing thing dead in 10 years? Or is it, is it absolutely just taken off and it's, it's all over the place or does it fizzle out? You know, so there's all these questions that you can beg to answer with that or, and, um, I mean, I hope that council's still doing their thing and and producing American products, and it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it all folds up. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I don't know. Um, I I think I I think whenever someone picks something up, forty years from now, it'll probably be the same reaction that we have. Whenever we pick up a wood slasher or a rail splitter from council from the seventies, it's like, ah, this is good. It's cool, but I wish it was a Kelly perfect or something like that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be hard to say because then like what we, you know, so like your Kelly, Kelly perfect Jersey, those are in pretty, I would say pretty high demand. Like those go for usually a pretty good price tag, right? Yeah, and absolutely. It's not, it's not like there's a shortage of them out there. They're out there. If you want one, you can go get one. It's not like they're a rare bird that you only see one, one a week, two a week. Yeah. I mean, they are out there in number, but yet still command a pretty good price tag. What, what are they going to be like 40 years from now? They're just going to be more valuable. You know, so like th- that game doesn't really change. It's just the price tag goes up. Yeah. So which will be the same with all of these other ones. But then, like, where does Hoffman fit into that? Where does Council fit into that? Where does Neiman fit into that? Um, you know, where are some of these other individual makers? Where are they going to fit into that? And I don't know. Will they be blips in the history? 
will they be highly sought after because maybe they had a small window? Will they still be going? And does that affect their collectability? I think it really all, you know, as with everything, it comes down to that individual and just how hardcore are they on a council, on a Hoffman, on a Gransfers. Well, Grant, who knows what Gransfers is going to be doing? You know, if they keep plowing along, you know, I don't really see them going anywhere anytime soon. So, you know, you get get their whole product line, which is a different niche. I mean, it's really interesting to just think about and be like, you know, where, where's it going to be? It might be totally non-existent. Who knows? Besides a museum. I don't really care about transfers. I don't even think about them. I really don't. I mean, I just restored one for a customer. Um, and it's nice, but like I never go out going, Oh man, I hope I find a transfers today. And never. I mean, I think I did. Uh, whenever I first got collecting, just because that was the hot axe, you know, oh, Bushcraft comes out. You got to, you, you got to have a, a Gransfors. They're the best axe ever. Small forest axe. Thanks, Wrangler Star. Um, and then I just lost all interest in Gransfors. Uh, you know, it's just like anything else. It's an individual thing. And, uh, you know, Do you obviously, have I have one. You've got one Gransfors. Right, but that was not on Gransfers. That was because I said that's a Euro, that's Team Euro, uh-huh. and I, I can't, I can't go that way because I want to concentrate on Team USA. Yeah, and it's same thing as like fire axes. Yeah, yeah, some yeah. of those other specialized. I don't get yeah. into those. And Euro was like, man, that's a whole another rabbit hole to go down. I mean, it's massive. Now you're getting into some serious history if you get into like the older ones. Oh yeah. Those sure. those other guys, you know, have just as long of history, if not longer, than say like the Man Dynasty from the mid 1700s. Mm-hmm. Now you're getting into some serious, and I don't have access to those like I do mm-hmm. over here. You know, so that was just something I sort of had to draw a line at and be like, I, I just can't go down that route. They obviously um, they have their place, they have their significance, um, and who knows? Maybe one day I'll dive into those a little bit more. What I try and do is that if anything comes to me, then I sort of punt and I say, hey, you know, there's a couple Euro guys that have way more information on that than me. And mm-hmm. I say, hey, help me out with what we have going on with this. Here's this question, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they then come to me with the American-based questions, and we just sort of live happily ever after. It's just too much for me to take on. Do you have any grants for Do you have any grants for Chris? Uh, yeah, I have. I have several. Really? Several? Yeah. Uh, like, th- I guess three, four, three. Um, I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you want to buy a carving axe, who sells it? What American company sells a carving axe? Hoffman. How do you get it? <laughs> well, he just, he just introduced his new ordering system. Do you see Maybe. that post? You got to get in line. Yeah, yeah like... I just go to Gransfors and buy it right now. Which is a good point. So, I mean, to his, you yeah. know, that, that's a really good example of, you know, Gransfors probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon because they got that whole, like, I would call that a specialty market to me if we're talking about axes. Now, yeah, some, guy sure. that is, some guy that is into carving, like, that is the market. And probably, like, what I'm doing or what I'm talking about is the specialty market. So, again, it's just all about individual perspective and what you have going on. But, um 
it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see, but I know that's, I just had to stay away from them. Yeah, I just, I just lost all interest. It's not that I lost interest, just everything else just took priority. Kelly, Collins, Plum, I just think they're cooler and they're way more accessible over here. So I found more of them. So I'm more interested in them. Yeah, of course. All right, so that was a really good question, and we could spend probably seven podcasts talking about that and getting everybody involved and blah, blah, blah. So that one, that question will never die. But hopefully everything uh, will still be sort of status quo 40 years from now, 50 years from now. We'll still have groups, and we'll still have guys talking, and we'll still have meetups, and who knows what the meetups will look like then. They'll probably be epic, hopefully. Well, I think that's everyone's fear. I don't, maybe fear is not the great word, but it's, it's everyone, it's everyone's concern, right? Because we're all hot and heavy into this hobby right now. And a couple of guys, uh, us three for sure, like we've got some serious money wrapped up in our collections. So we want to see it, uh, last for another 40 years. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's in our interest for it to last 40 years. I mean, I know you're just going to give your stuff away to the Smithsonian, but. I'd like to make some money on mine. <laughs> well, I think the one thing that's helping us right now, more so than what it did in the guys that were collecting in the 70s and 80s, so like if you had your your uh, Larry McPhail's, your Alan Kaufman's, things like that, those guys had to go old school, right? Like they had to go to the shows. They had to write mm-hmm. letters. We got social media right now, so I can see everything that you have going on. You can see me. I can see guys on the West Coast, East Coast, Canada. I can see all their collections and what's happening. We can plan and organize, like, hey, let's get together at Jimbo's house here, you know, in the spring, whatever it's going to be. They didn't have any of that back in the day. So I think that what we have going on now actually helps us because there's more visibility to everybody and everything on what is out there, what do we need to learn, what do we know, what don't we know. So it actually helps us. In well, order to be able to preserve and make sure that everything is going to continue and have interest. And everything, everything and everyone today is so accessible, right? So if, if you want five years ago, 10 years ago, operator 1975 was just a dude that posted stuff on blade forms. There, like, there was just no way other than sitting down and typing to find out who you were. And that was only 10 years ago. And now here we are, like we're buddies. We know what's going on. I watch all your feed stuff. So everyone, like the first, like whenever someone, a customer comes to me and says, Hey, do you have such and such acts? And if I don't have it, it's real easy just to put it out there. Hey, I'm looking for fill in the blank. And it just comes to you. Like those guys back, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if they were looking for a single axe, think about how difficult that would have been for them. It'd be like, nuts. I'm, I'm looking for, I don't know, just whatever. Uh, a Black Raven 2-2 Cruiser pre-1930. Do those exist pre-1930? I haven't seen a 2-2 Cruiser stamped. A 2-2... Pre thirty Raven stamped like that. Well, let me look. Have I seen that? 
probably not. But to your point. No, it would just be really difficult to find a specific piece that you're looking to either complete your collection or to to sell or move or give as a gift or whatever. Like all the all the information that we have right now, like we just kind of take it for granted, right? Like oh. You would have to go into Tom Lamont mode and you'd be writing letters to everybody and then getting letters back. And then even at like his end stages of when he was putting his books together and stuff was printing out pictures of axes on a computer of all the stuff that I have. And like, I can't mm-hmm. even fathom it right now. Like it just makes my brain hurt how long that that had to have taken to do. Well, and even just building the network of people and collectors and friends or whatever, just how impersonal it would be. You're just corresponding over email or letters or something. Now it's like, oh, if, if you want to talk to whoever, um, get on their Instagram, send them some messages. There's a chance they might respond. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty imp- imp- impressive of what we have access to today, not in, not just in terms of axes that are available, but but people. Like if you have a question for, I don't freaking know, at whoever, send them a fucking message. They might get back to you. Yeah, so I think it definitely has helped us out though with where we're at today with the whole axe game. I mean, there's there's just no getting around it, so. Do you find that cruiser or no? There's, there's no cruiser listed in the 1921 catalog. Only three and up. Three and up. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if that definitely means anything, but it's not. Well, it, so I wonder why that was a thing. Why was that a thing? Because uh, they were they were using cruisers forever. But why? Why the two two? Specifically, why the two two? Interesting. Interesting. We will figure it out. All right. So those are the big questions then that we had sent in from all of our listeners, which we do appreciate. There's a couple more, some minor ones in there. I think Killer had actually posted the or asked it originally, and somebody else ended up asking it. Is why is there no Kelly Perfect Connecticut? Yeah. I think Killer asked that question. Yeah, he had asked that, and somebody else actually sent that in. I think he had brought that up an episode or two ago, or maybe in talking or whatever, but um, that is very interesting. I have no idea. I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you're talking about putting two things together that were pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Why not marry those two? And who knows? There might be one out there, but... I don't I've, think I've ever seen one. So if you're going to talk about Connecticut, I've got a really cool Connecticut. Um, it's a beveled Connecticut. Have you ever seen that? I've seen one of those. I can't remember whose it was. It's not mine. I can't remember whose it was. Well, if you spend any time in my shop whenever you were down here, you would have seen it. I would have took it if I would have saw it. No. No, you wouldn't. I can't remember who. Somebody had one of those. I can't remember who it was. I've got one. Yeah, I've only seen I've only ever seen one, um, just one of those pieces that's. I, it's just, huh? Didn't I just link Miller? Didn't I just link you a plum Connecticut with bubbles on it on eBay? 
Today? Like a week ago? I, I have no idea what happened yesterday, let alone a week ago. You, you know what? You did. You did. No, you didn't. Did you? I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to see if I can go back in and see if it's still on my watch list. Um, I thought it was a plum Connecticut with bubbles. And the one that I've got, it's uh, it's not like the 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 Kelly Perfect Bevels. It's like the some I, some people call them Phantom Bevels or like you know how like there are different types of bevels. Mm-hmm. So the Kelly Perfect, the old ones, they're super deep scallops. And then we talked about how whenever they went to Charleston. Um, they became less and less uh, pronounced, but you still got that small, small area in between and they swoop out. But then there are others that are just up on the top edge and the bottom edge um, and they're like kind of scoop, scooped out, dished out. And then you've got ones like on the autograph that are like nearly quarter rounds yeah. that are just on the tops and the bottoms. So there are a couple of different variations of them. Yeah, almost like the little micro bevels on those autographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wee little guys. Yeah. Yeah. And and as time went on, especially in the commander, it's like, dude, those dies went to shit. And some of them are all crooked. There's a whole bunch of like slag stuff still on the inside of them. Just the fit and finish of those bevels were just junk. Total junk. Yeah, and you know, it all goes back to the axe history and stuff, but. Why wasn't there a Kelly Perfect Connecticut? Well, why? Just it, it, I don't know. Why? I, <laughs> just because they didn't want to make it. Why? Why would you not do that? Well, yeah. you made it a perfect. Be... Yeah, I mean, for Christ's sakes, you made a perfect hammer. I have a perfect sickle, or a, and there's a. You, they had that Kelly Perfect name on just about every other thing. Farming implements, shovels, whatever else. You wouldn't put it on a Connecticut? It is weird. It, definitely weird. Um, Somebody out there has to have an answer. One of the one of the old-timer Kelly employees or something. Um, specifically why they didn't make it. Right. Every other pattern, every other farm implement, I mean, heck, on the 1921 catalog, Kelly yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Imagine that just being a nice big fat Connecticut on there, man. Oh, no. What do you got on there? What is it? It's a Michigan. Yeah, why? Put a Connecticut <laughs> on there. Come on. <laughs> well, why, why didn't they put a jersey on there? I don't know, man. This is 1921. This is in the heyday, man. This is when... This is, you know, we just took over American Axe. We're the dominant force in the world. And what do we do? We put a Michigan on there with bevels. Who cares? And a paper label. Right. Put a, yeah, put a jersey on there. Put a Connecticut on there. Put a big fat swamper on there, man. Put something that's going to pop. No, we put a Michigan on there. But this is why I'm not into marketing. Maybe the thought process was, this is actually the most popular, most made Axe. So we're going to get it to resonate with everybody. And we're yeah. going to put our most popular name, Perfect, on it. Therefore, instead of putting a Connecticut where everybody's like, what the heck is that? That's dumb. Well, we're going to put a Michigan that everybody knows and has seen because there's a billion of them out there. Yeah. And we'll be yeah. able to go with it. So 
maybe I should just shut up. You want to shut your face? Shut up. But um, those are the questions. Obviously, we'll get to some more questions. Um, what else do we got, gentlemen? Anything else here before we wrap up this horse and pony show? Yeah, actually, I got something. Uh, I'm going to be out of the shop the rest of this week. So Tuesday through Friday, I'm actually flying to Maryland, and I'm going to hang out with Chris Cash of Mel- Philip Metalworks, and we're going to be banging out all these bottle openers. We've got a carving pattern, a jersey pattern, and a double bit, and um, red label abrasives. They sent. I did a video on them. Um, they sent a ton of belts. We got uh, 60 grit, 80 grit, and 320. So Chris is going to be banging them out. Um, I ordered a stamp from Buckeye Engraving. It's getting sent to his house, so hopefully he'll have it either today or tomorrow. Um, so all these bottle openers that we're going to have, it's going to have Mount Phillip Metal Works on there, and it's going to have Vintage Axe Works. So he's going to be banging them, and I'm going to be grinding them. And we haven't settled up on a price point yet. They're either going to be $65 or $75. We just kind of need to to get things lined up. We're doing a limited run of them, so hopefully we'll, we'll get these out um, in plenty of time for um, you know people to, to get gifts and everything for Christmas. We're going to knock them out pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know when the next run's going to be, so if you're interested, hit me up, hit Chris up. Uh, from Mount Phillip Metalworks. Um, I think, well, he and I just need to talk about how we're going to actually get these out and offer them to everyone. It might be as simple as just DM and be done. I might put them on my website. I'll probably put some on my website. Um, We'll just have to see how it all goes. But it's going to be two full freaking days of nothing but grinding down in his shop so it's going to be it's going to be fun and chris cash is freaking awesome but it's going to be a lot of fucking work um so that's what i'm going to be doing the rest of this week so uh, i do have i do have some orders i just sold a puget sound my only freaking puget sound uh i've only got one but it's i sold it and i got two plum michigans that i'm working on and I've got an unmarked wood slasher that I'm working on. And I have been talking about this freaking Black Raven 2-2 Cruiser that I'm putting together. I've got a lot of people interested in it. But it's going to be a showpiece, and I just I haven't had time to get to it. I've been messing around with other orders, and i got that freaking lathe that I've cleaned up and restored and everything. So that's what's going on at uh, Vintage Axe Workshop. So I have a couple questions with that. Um, go. go. Is Chris go. Cash related to Johnny Cash? He says that he um, uh, there is a, a direct lineage from him from Johnny Cash to him. He is he is part of that family. Hmm. Okay. I was just joking with that, but that's actually cool if that is the case. <laughs> now, if we're talking about bottle openers for beer, then are you guys going to make a special one then to like open up IPAs? Like, will that be like an extra? Yeah, like, yeah. So every like a badge we, version or something? Or no, every every no every bottle opener that we that we're going to be offering has the ability to open every single beer out there, even the pussy beer that you like. 
Well, you're so, gonna have to make a special one though for no, IPAs. No, they're it's all have to, they're it's all probably special. gonna be like in a V shape, right? No, they're, like all, they're all special. They're all special for IPAs. They're specific to IPAs, oh, but wow. they have but they have the ability to open shit beer that Miller likes. Oh, so like are you guys, if they're gonna have the ability to open up all IPAs, are they gonna be like dipped in like pink? <laughs> <laughs> Instead no, of like gonna be, channel lock blue, you're gonna have like Roy pink. No, they're very similar dipped. to your shirt. I mean, it would make sense, and then you could sell one with your shirt. They're gonna be dipped in freaking awesome sauce. So, I guess you can't have one because you're not awesome because you drink shit beer. Is the awesome sauce pink? No, it is not pink. All right, I think that you should talk to Johnny Cash, and you guys need to come up with a specialized IPA opener. It's basically a V. That you would just put right over the. I mean, I can see it. Actually, I just came up with it. I should get a cut. Yeah, I'm gonna cut you if you just <laughs> you keep on going down this freaking rat right. hole of shit beer. Killer, what do you got to wrap up here this uh, morning, sir? Uh, not much. Just uh, keep axing on. How many? Uh, how many of those flying fox sheets did you make, Chris? Fifteen. Fifteen. They looked really, really good. Very clean. Those will be available on Self Reliance Outfitters website uh, shortly, as soon as they, as soon as they get shipped out. Awesome. Damn. What about you? All right. What about you, Miller? I am. I sent you guys some pictures. I've been working in the uh, the garage all week. We replaced oh yeah. The... Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hold up. What about those freaking black ravens that you sent us? Black Ravens, I sent you. I never sent anybody Black Ravens. Pictures, text. Whenever you would, you sent us that text. Oh, you yeah, had you yeah. had that rockaway pattern that you posted, yep. and then you had yep. it looked mm-hmm. like an ads eye double mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Yes. So, is that in your possession? That is what's commonly known as a work in progress. <laughs> so that's what those are all up. But just working. Uh, Getting everything all set up in the garage to try and get after some stuff here in the next week or so. So that'll be, we'll cover that at a later date. We're not ready for any kind of announcement or anything like that. So we're still just uh, getting our feet under us and uh, go from there. So hey, hey, Killer, did you get that K? You got that KMG running? And as a matter of fact, I did get the KMG going. Um, that turned out to be an absolute nightmare. Really? Yeah, because they just. You said you had to drop some electrical and move some outlets and, or something like that. Yeah, here's the thing. It all revolves back to time. Like, I, I don't have the time to do this stuff the way it should be done. Sure. So I'm out here just trying to get things going because I need, I need that grinder to do my job. So when they built this shed, they put like a 60-amp service in here, and it's like a, a sub-panel, you know? Mm-hmm. And probably for the average person, a 60-amp sub-panel is probably more than adequate to run some lights and a couple outlets. Okay. You got a guy like me who thinks he needs awesome everywhere. And I had I have two pieces of equipment that run 220, my heater and my KMG now. I had a 220 plug, but I didn't want to just, like, unplug one to plug the other in. I mean, yeah. It just sucks. So... Um, what needed to happen is I needed to rip out the sub panel that they have in here and run an actual like 100, 125 amp service to the shop. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But I don't have time. So I, what I ended up doing is putting a sub panel in, which turned into a nightmare because when you go to home, home Depot or Lowe's, those guys are like, can I help you? And they're like, yeah, uh, what do I need? And they're like, well, I'm not an electrician. So, so why, why did you even bother asking me if you can help me? Dude, have you seen that episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson's walking down in Lowe's? They're like, hey, can I help you? And he goes, I know more than you and just keeps on walking. <laughs> I, and, and that's, that's the reality. And so, you know, the guy's standing there and I, I'm, I'm gathering up the stuff I need and he's like, are you sure you can do this? And I, I just looked at him like, dude, I'm more confident that I can handle this than you could. I, I mean, it's a I, joke. I at least have the general knowledge of what the hell I'm picking up here. And you, you work here and you don't even know what I'm talking about. So. It's there, just, there was a time when you could go to a hardware store, even Home Home Depot and Lowe's. Fifteen years ago, you could go there, and there were guys that knew what the hell they were talking about. Now they just have freaking hipsters with freaking dippity doing their hair, just walking around like fucking dipshits that don't know a goddamn thing. Yeah, they they, they actually used to hire people in the trade. Yeah, exactly. And you could ask them, and they would they would know exactly what you're talking about, and be like, yeah. So you don't burn your house down. Do this. Do that. Yeah. Blah blah blah. You could go there for information, and now it's like, well, I watched a, I watched a video on YouTube. So here are the parts that I need. Um, can you help me? Yeah, all those parts are on aisle twelve. But that's all I know. Yeah. So I don't know. I had to make I had to make two or three trips to the. To the hardware store to get the right stuff. I bought I bought more than I needed. Um, part of that's my fault. I didn't really pay attention to my electrical needs right mm-hmm. off the bat. So, but long story short, everything is hooked up. It's all working. I haven't burnt down my house yet. Um, we'll see what happens. Well, that's good. And luckily, luckily the shop is not connected to the house. So, <laughs> so are you gonna just? Um, are you going to install a dust collection collecting system at one point later on down the road? Is that the goal? Yeah, I got to figure out like how that will fit into this uh, small space. I'm quickly outgrowing this this shop. I mean, it's a nice shop, but it's just like at this point, if I wanted to put, if I wanted to add a second sewing machine, it's not even a possibility. There's nowhere to. So, um. I think dust collectors can sit out, can be like they don't have to be in a heated space. No. At some point, I plan on putting lean tos on the side of the shop, so maybe a dust collector could go out there, and then I could just run the piping. Well, it just needs to be contained because the typically the blower sits on top of the collecting unit. Yeah. I mean, I do have um, I do have a pretty nice air filter system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Need to get mounted, and that helps a lot. Like I had that in the other shop, and it, it does help contain the amount of stuff that flies around the air. So yeah, um, man, I, I think missed... that oh, like a shop would probably be adequate. Yeah, I missed out on an American-made dust collector this this weekend. It was an old Delta that someone had retrofitted with a two-horse single-phase. 115 volt Baldor motor. The guy wanted 125 bucks, so I sent him a message. Oh, sorry, guy's coming to pick it up. And then a day later, he's like, "Well, the guy bailed on me. You still want it?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm interested." And then he was like, "Well, someone's coming to look at it at one o'clock today." 
and then freaking nothing. So I missed out on that. I missed out. What about you, Miller? What? In, anything, any final parting words? Final parting words are this. I appreciate everybody taking the time out of their day on their commute, whatever they have going on, and they're listening to these three guys talk about axes, history, and the life that comes with it. We appreciate everybody that has done that. Episode 14 is now in the books. We look forward to episode 15 next week. And uh, we will go from there, my friends. So we're going to put this one under wraps. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you.